Welcome back. Um, so, Big Brother um, is the new novel from Lionel Shriver. It's her 11th round of applause for that. And she's reading for the very first time in the whole world here tonight. I know, I know. You're very lucky. When Pandora picks up her older brother Edison at the local Iowa airport, she does not recognise him. He hasn't changed his hair um, or his clothing style. The once slim, hip New York jazz pianist has gained hundreds of pounds, and all the people on the plane are like, that guy smelled, he's in my personal space. Um, and she's horrified to think that this is her brother. What happened to her brother? In keeping with tonight's theme, what is his secret? Ferociously witty and unrelenting, it's clear we all need to talk about Edison. Please welcome Lionel Shriver. I take that as a compliment. I don't think Damien is easily rattled. I was heartened to discover that the passage I want to read you from Big Brother this evening is current in that I encountered a study in my Daily Telegraph this morning, just gave away my tawdry politics. And according to this study, 27% of those surveyed changed their diet and or health regime after seeing an unflattering photo of themselves. 58% of women say they try to lose weight after seeing a picture of themselves in which they believe they look fat. And this passage takes up from there. Whenever I encounter a picture of myself, the first thing I assess is my weight I am attached to particular photographs, not because they memorialize a signal occasion, but because they depict me as thin. I could probably arrange my every photo in a precise order of preference that would perfectly correspond to the continuum of my, of my size. The most beloved are those from my catering days, when I was gaunt, which makes me look sexless and insignificant. I don't care. Being underweight might not be fetching, but it still strikes me as a badge of nobility. Yes, I realize how ludicrous this sounds. And I envy my previous incarnation's appearance of enjoying a little leeway. I scoffed at my husband's association of physique with vice and virtue, but I bought into the same fishy equivalence myself. My stepchildren imagined that I was hiding or failing to hide my vanity when I shied from my photo spreads. But I couldn't bear to look at pictures of myself from the previous three years precisely out of vanity. And that's why I didn't order extra copies of New York Magazine or even obtain one hard copy of the Forbes piece on my company. I looked fat. All right, I'm ashamed of this. I don't know if this heightened concern for size was done to me or is something I have done to myself. 
what I do know? One, I am not the only one who appraises their photographs with exactly the same eye. Two, the folks who also weigh up pictures of themselves are not all women. Confronting a photograph of oneself is always a fraught business. For one's own image doesn't merely evoke the trivial fretting of, I had no idea my nose was so big. This sounds idiotic, but every time I see a picture of myself, I am shocked to have been seen. I do not, under ordinary circumstances, feel seen. When I walk down the street, my experience is of looking manifest to myself in the ethereal privacy of my head. I grow alarmed when presented evidence of my public body. This is quite a different matter from whatever dissatisfaction I may, be, may harbor over the heft of my ass. It is more a matter of having an ass, any ass, that other people can ogle, criticize, or grasp and being staggered that to others, this formation, whatever its shape, has something to do with me. Every once in a while, I can connect a droll set of my facial muscle, muscles to the real in-head experience of finding something funny and keeping the source of this amusement to myself. But in the main, I feel utterly to recognize myself the me of me, in my photographs. I do not identify with the cropped, once naturally blonde head of hair with a tendency to frizz. When I have again neglected to color the roots for three solid months, the camera chastises. But I know that walking around with gray down the center part feels exactly the same as when the gray is covered. I'm not convinced that my very self even has hair. I do not identify with my short fingers. My relationship to my hands is to what they do, and digital stubbiness has never impaired their competent folding of buttermilk biscuit dough. I do not feel like someone with a neck lately on the thick side, with its implications of low sophistication and loutishness. I grew up in L.A., for heaven's sake. About I, all I truly recognize in my photos is my clothes, and I will greet the image of a quilted jacket from 1989 with the joy of meeting a long-lost friend. The fact that my clothing has been visually available to other people, I do not find upsetting. The body is another matter. It is mine, I have found it useful, but it is an avatar. Given that presumably most people contend with just this rattling disconnect between who they are to themselves and what they are to others, it's perplexing why we're still roundly obsessed with appearance. Having verified on our own accounts the feeble link between the who and the what 
You'd think that from the age of three, we'd have learned to look straight through the avatar as we do through a pane of glass. On the other hand, I sometimes suspected that my female employees who were lavishing $50 a week of their modest salaries on makeup had mastered a secret that eluded me most of the time and only intruded when I looked at snapshots. Like it or not, you are a what to other people. You may not recognize your heavy thighs, your cornflower eyes, but they do. And competent interface with the rest of the world involves manipulating that irrelevant, arbitrary, not you image to the maximum extent. Ergo, if the makeup's application was skillful, that 50 bucks could not have been better spent. Which brings us back to weight. Ever since Edison gave me cause to, I've made a study of this. The hierarchy of apprehensions when laying eyes on another person. Once a form emerges from the distance that is clearly a human and not a lamppost, we now log one, gender, two, size. This order of recognitions may be universal in my part of the world, though I do not believe size has always been number two. Yet these days I am apt to register that a figure is slight or fat, even before I pick up a nanosecond later that they are white, Hispanic, or black. Especially when the subject in question is on the large side. Many of us probably detect on the large side, even before determining large person of which sex. Accordingly, in eyewitness testimonies to the police, slim, average build, heavy set, or some more refined variation thereof, features without fail. In fiction, authors who do not immediately identify roughly how much a character weighs are not doing their jobs. And walk-on thumbnails and short stories invariably begin something like, Allison, a tall, skinny girl with freckles, or Bob was an affable, gregarious man whose enjoyment of imported British ales was beginning to announce itself in his waistline. <laughs> this is important, if only because those weight categories of thin, fat, and average attached to a constellation of character traits, a set of stock qualities that, with no other information to go on, we impute to size. Mind, there is no neutrality in this game. As in countries like Australia, where participation in elections is a legal obligation, being one weight or another is a kind of voting that doesn't allow for abstentions. You are three-dimensional, and you have to weigh something. Begin with average. Like most middle positions, considered the dullest and least worthy of comment. Yet even average in this morass of preconceptions has grown complicated. Here in Iowa, anyway, we are no longer in accord on what dimensions qualify as standard. Granted, lofty health 
granted lofty health authorities have sought to impose the body mass index, thus providing a numerical definition of the normal. Although I'm stymied by how the formula of weight divided by height squared, invented by some Belgian in the early 1800s, has suddenly become so fashionable two centuries later. In Westdale Mall in Cedar Rapids, the norm is another story. My fellow citizens are so consistently broad of backside, round of shoulder, stout of leg, and plump of bicep that we might all be trooping across a canvas by Fernando Botero. Like cubism, futurism, or art deco, giantism has become a recognizable style in which the bulk of the population is drafted. Strolling public promenades, I am often struck by a powerful collusion, one in which during the last few years I had participated to the hilt. I would think, these people are nearly all heavier than I am, so I'm not overweight. Size is relative. If everyone is fat, no one is fat. Despite the Midwest's sneaky, steady expansion of what constitutes average contours, we still blithely assume that every one of these so-called normal people would desperately love to be thinner. It's taken as a given that Mr. and Ms. Average are dissatisfied with their weights, avoidant of mirrors, inclined to take their dress or jean size as a personal indictment and sufficiently anxious about getting on a scale in the presence of others to put off doctor's appointments for months on end. It stands to reason, then, that these days even mid-range mass in America's heartland conveys a disposition to shame, frustration, and disappointment, if also a constitutional inclination to cut other people slack. But what, or rather who, is the skinny. By conceit, the rail thin are harsh, joyless, and critical. They suffer from the same chronic dissatisfaction as average-sized people. But on top of applying a ruthless ruler to themselves, they are reliably dissatisfied with you. Their proclivity for self-control inexorably bleeds into controlling everyone else as well. They don't know how to have a good time and don't hesitate to poop your party, too. Scrawnies are superior, haughty, and elitist. Vain, self-centered, and cold. Picky, stingy, and withholding. Aloof, uptight, judgmental, and condescending. Brittle, not only in appearance, but in demeanor and bearing. Dishonest likely to decline the offer of dessert because of feeling far too full and insincere. You look terrific. Nasty, although usually behind your back. Fearful, not only of food, but of people who eat it, as if libertinism might be contagious. Thus prone to an unconscious apartheid, instinctively partial to the company of their own withered kind. Rigid. God forbid you should invite one of these paragons for a drink. 
when it's time to go running. One small subsection of the skeletal manages to get credit for an intellectual absorption in higher things than lunch or a scatterbrain tendency to skip meals out of forgetfulness. But they are all men. There lives not a slender Western woman about whom it is presumed at first meeting that she is too involved in her work to remember to eat. Stick figures imagine they inspire envy when in fact they excite dislike. Incredibly, the self-starved never appear capable of taking any pleasure in the very vessel for which they've sacrificed. So get this. Despite the correlation of emaciation with smugness, they seem always to wish they were even thinner. <laughs> Lastly, the well and truly fat. I think we long ago put to rest their correlation with jollity. <laughs> Misery more like it. Melancholy, perhaps. Helplessness. Self-indulgence and self-deceit. Defensiveness. Resignation to the present. Fatalism about the future. Self-hatred and self-reproach. Shyness. I'm just going to make sure there isn't a real fire. There isn't one. No, it's fine. Go on. It was, it was almost as if some overweight person took offense. <laughs> but the paragraph gets nicer. <laughs> Shyness, self-pity, albeit richly deserved, a persecution complex, although ought it to be called a complex when you're genuinely persecuted, a self-deprecating sense of humor, humility, as a consequence of having all too often been on the pointy end of malice, kindness, an enfolding warmth, Generosity, born of self-evident frailty, cheerful acceptance of whatever might also be wrong with you, a longing to be left in peace, and a preference for staying home. Gentleness, harmlessness, languor, frankness, ribaldry, a down-to-earth nature, and a lack of pretension. Now these are stereotypes, and exceptions amid real people of every size are legion. Moreover, I've been as brainwashed as the next woman into accepting the prescribed dimensions of a fetching figure. Nevertheless, when I look at the lists of attributes we instinctively ascribe to the very thin and the very fat, I would rather be fat 
mentioned it earlier when we got in the elevator. Um, it did shriek with the too many people in the lift alarm, and I thought, my God, I'm that person <laughs> in that novel. Um, but it wasn't me. Um, it was somebody else who was fatter. Um, so I just want to talk about, about that really interesting equation um, of vice and virtue mm. that, that runs uh, through the novel, and I think, and I think culturally. So I just want to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I think that's, that's one of the things that captures my imagination about this topic, is that it, it's, this is no longer a health issue. It's, it's, it's similar to what happened with tobacco, and uh, smoking stopped being just bad for you. It made you, e made you an evil person. And uh, the same thing seems to have happened with weight, and not just uh, in relation to others, that we make judgments about um, how disciplined they are, whether they would make good employees. I mean, there's a lot of discrimination against people who are heavily overweight, genuinely fat people. I, I'm amazed anybody gets a job um, because there's a huge prejudice. But the prejudice is because y y y the assumption is that you know you have no control over yourself. You have no discipline. You have no ability to uh, control your own impulses. And therefore, you know, you can make all kinds of assumptions beyond that, um, which is why I think that people think, oh, you're, you're also not going to be a good em employee. And I think thinness also uh, comes with a sense of, of virtue, although I, I, I also find that when it's like any virtue, when you take it too far, it's a big turnoff. <laughs> I, I find really skeletally thin uh, women in particular uh, very uncomfortable to be around. It's so, um, and I tried to express that in the paragraph. But I, uh, somehow we've got to get away from this bizarre opposition and restore it to a health issue and, um, and at the same time perhaps relax our aesthetic a little bit. Because I, I, what upsets me more than anything is not just being mean to, to fat people, but it's also the tyranny of the interior monologue that, that takes up huge amounts of time and energy uh, worrying about, should I have eaten that muffin? You know, we have better things to think about. But, I mean, Pandora has this thought when she sees her brother. She doesn't recognize her brother. She hears other people talking about her brother. She sees her brother. She doesn't believe that it's her brother. And then there's this kind of horrible, I mean, it's almost English in its kind of politeness principle, you know, where we don't want to talk about the fact that you're large or big or, you know, and, th and there's a kind of struggle to find language that's acceptable to talk about the fact that he's, like, super morbidly obese, you know, yes. fold-wipingly fat. Um, and, the, and, and people are really, you know, she struggles with this. It's her sister who loves him because she doesn't want to condemn him by, just by describing him. And it seems to me like even as we all talk about it, like there's a real difficulty with finding the right language. And as a writer, that must have been very hard. Well, it was interesting. Um, there is a line in the latter part of the book when the, the husband... Observe, observe uh, that 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 Pandora is starting to call her brother big, rather than you know overweight, heavy, obese, any of that, um, as if that makes it any different. That, that there's a, I, I think that's probably the most acceptable term we've got now 
and it's okay to be big. Um, and of course, uh, the commerce is now com trying to come up with whole, a whole new language of describing customers that they want but are not going to fit into the old clothes. So the jeans, you know. yeah, talk about yes. the jeans. Um, what is, I can't, I can't rattle it off, but my favorite is the fact that the Levi's have come up with this super size jeans, which they call Supreme Curve. <laughs> <laughs> and Edison is way beyond Supreme Curve. I mean, you know, I, I, I think the thing about him is, is that, you know, at no, everyone's colluding in this kind of conspiracy apart from the husband, apart from Fletcher, who is, who finds it very hard to bear. And I think there's a, Fletcher is, is, is Pandora's husband and he makes artisanal furniture, I think the Americans would call it. And there's a brilliant description of these chairs that he makes which look like they've just, that like they were antelopes at a watering hole and they've just sprung away um, <laughs> when somebody approaches and then they kind of stay there. And it's just the most beautiful description at the start of the book. Uh, but he's clearly an asshole. Um, um, and, 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 and he, you know, is living on tofu and mung beans and all the rest. But he's at the other extreme, isn't mm -hmm. he? Yes, and uh, that's an exploration of, of, of the so-called nutritional Nazi. And uh, that's not attractive either. No. And one of the things that he does, clearly, I mean, he, he's an only child. Uh, Edison, the brother, comes to stay with them, and granted, for far too long. I mean, I, I would not want anyone I'm related to to stay in my house for two months. So he's got a point. But he's also jealous. He doesn't understand the sibling relationship. He's very suspicious he's of it. He's an only child. He's an only child. He doesn't, doesn't get it and, and finds it a little too intimate. He doesn't like his wife being that close to another man. It's upsetting. And the, so while he's judgmental anyway, he ends up channeling a lot of his discomfort with this intimacy into his disapproval of Edison, the fat slob. You know, so it's it's quite dishonest because he he thinks that he disapproves of Edison only because of weight, but the, we know that it's much more primitive than that. Oh, he's jealous of there being another man in this, yes. woman, in this woman's life. And there's a you know there's a quasi-sexual jealousy there. Oh, definitely. Um, and I think as, as the novel progresses, and I really don't want to give away the thing that, that happens at the end, the, the thing that had me going back 15 pages and going, oh. <laughs> so I won't give that thing away. <laughs> um, but, but I will say that it's very intense, um, and, and in common with many of the things that, that you've written. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about you know, apart from the social and cultural dimensions of it, about the personal dimensions for you, about the piece that, mm. that you had written about your brother. Mm. Um, and um, your brother had been, had been, very, had been very obese and had, had died shortly after you'd written a piece about, about saying that you'd feared exactly this thing. Yes. Um, and when did the process of writing this book happen after that? And how, if in any way at all, did, did it help you articulate your feelings about it? Well, I'd written a column for Standpoint, um, and it was about the fat pride movement, uh, of which I'm a, a little suspicious. Um, 
I, yeah, I'm not. I'm uncomfortable with it, and I was trying to explain that I was uncomfortable with it from a how, personal yeah. perspective because I had an older brother about whom, before this column, I had never written in public, and um, I tried to be respectful of his privacy, but at the same time, I I explained that he had all kinds of health problems, and therefore I was not really sold on the idea of the fat pride movement that you could be, quote, healthy at any size. And I, and I thought, and I said, I had to say, I, I, I was worried about my brother's ability to stay alive. I, and uh, the day I filed that, that piece, a uh, few hours later, I heard from my parents that my brother was in hospital and he died 10 day, days later. And it was because of the complications of his considerable uh, mass. I didn't Im immediately resolve that I would write a book on it. I'm not that, um, I guess I'm not that literarily driven. Um, but it did prey on me. I had a moment before my brother died. It seemed as if he was going to pull out of it. And I was my brother's health proxy. I don't think you have that over here, but it's the person who makes the medical decisions if they're not capable of making those decisions for themselves. And so the, his doctor had to ring me up in London to, to consult on um, what were the courses available to us. And I asked that doctor whether or not my brother was a candidate for gastric bypass surgery. And the doctor seemed to think that he was a very good candidate. Uh, but he added the caveat that um, he would need someone to take care of him. And he would uh, need a place to stay in the New York area where he was then in hospital, but that my brother didn't live in New York. Well, I had this weird moment because my husband and I have a house in New York, and it has a granny flat in it. And I had to think about, gosh, is this what I'm called to do? Should I really put my brother up, see him through gastric bypass surgery, and uh, take care of him while he eats two tablespoon meals? My brother was very difficult. And I wasn't sure I was up for it. And then two days later, he died. And I didn't have to do it. I never had to even answer that question. And it was that moment that preyed on me. And that's really where this book is from. Because in the book, the sister does it. She, she answers the question. Yes, she does. Um, I'm not going to say how she answers the question. Um, but I'm very, I'm very interested in, in the, um, the idea of, um, of redemption, almost in a way, for the sister um, and, and, and for him. But we can't say any more without revealing any more about the book, so, so we won't. Um, anyway, I think, shall I open it up to questions? I think I will. Yeah, okay. One, two, three, go. Hello. Uh, I read your review of the book Frau. Uh, <laughs> which was brilliantly scathing. 
And one of the most memorable comments in it was that your empathy for the woman who wrote it, yeah. finding out that her husband had an affair, it subsides when you find out that she had several affairs. Mm. Why is it that we have less empathy for someone when we discover they've had affairs? So this is an interesting question about the book Vow, which you mean, or have read, but which you mean no. Um, in which uh, um, the, the author writes about her husband having an affair, it's kind of coruscating, and then we discover that she's had several affairs. I think the question really is more to do with kind of the balance of guilt and innocence in a narrative, um, which I think we can relate back to, to the vice and, and, and virtue thing. Yeah, I mean, uh, we are still surprisingly old-fashioned. It's, it's almost bizarre, because supposedly we can sleep with whomever we like, but actually readers are still quite conservative and apply a very um, traditional uh, ruler to characters. And of course, even in a memoir, you're a character. <laughs> and if you are yourself faithful, then if somebody betrays you, then you immediately get audience sympathy. That's, that's a sympathetic position. But if you have yourself been repeatedly unfaithful, then you're asking for it as far as the reader is concerned. And it's up to the narrator, in this case, to convince you otherwise, if she wants you on her side. Um, so I always, I always find that very interesting, that that kind of Old Testament judgmentalism is still alive and well in today's readers. And it is in your book, too. I mean, Pandora and Edison have a whole showdown over pizza. <laughs> um, and that, that, that's a whole other episode. Um, Jessica? Um, you appear to tackle people who are the opposite to you in mm. book. The mother of a killer, the very fat person. You don't know I haven't killed anyone. Well. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I've killed a lot of people. I mean, this is something you've you, you, you've talked about before. You, you um, in in I think the afterword to um, Kevin, you say your novels either address what you want or what you fear, mm -hmm. and I wonder which of the two piles of books that you write this book falls into. Yes, I, I think that that I've finished the line. The next line is something like that. I, perhaps to my spiritual detriment, it's mostly what you fear. The the pile of the ones about fear is much higher. And I'm still doing that. <laughs> I think this is a fear book, although that there is a a desire in it as well for um, loyalty and um, self-improvement and the improvement of your loved ones. So it's not all, it's not all negative. It's got a positive trajectory. Um, and certainly the book that I'm planning next is totally fear-driven. So I think that as you get older, the fear is much likely to take over. At least that's what's happening to me. Partly because as you get older, there's less to want. There's less time to want it. There's certainly a lot less time to get it. <laughs> what's the book that you're planning next? Well, apropos of... Uh, of our first author. I mean, I'm doing a near future book. I'm very interested, I, I, I became interested in the fact that when I calculated how long I was likely to live, 
I would probably, well, I have pretty, pretty hardy genes. I could probably live into the 2040s. And I realized I could live into the 2040s. My heart fell. I don't want to be around then. Everything I know suggests it's going to be terrifying. <laughs> so I'm, I, I think I'm going to set something in the 2040s. Let's find out what I'm afraid of. It's the same thing I did with Kevin. It's like, I, what, why don't you want to be a mother? Well, let's write it and find out. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously fucked up archery is a reason um, not to be a mother. But also, you know, I was ad- you were kind of adding the, fat, the really fat child to the list of that things in this, in this book. I think it was another, I felt like that was another reason not to have children was that the, w- the ways that your child could turn out wrong, there was, a, there was that judgment, that fear that your child could do that. Anyway, that's, that's my interpretation. <laughs> Somebody at the back, and then one more question here. Who, whose hand was up at the back? Yes. The question is, is about kind of, you straddle both cultures and you ju- actually last year I think took British citizenship but you spent, you spent a lot of I, I haven't yet actually. Oh you haven't? Okay. That's Wikipedia correct. got that wrong. Wikipedia got that wrong. And the Guardian. <laughs> I, I've decided I'm going to have to apply for citizenship because I have to match my Wikipedia page. <laughs> so the question... Was about morality. As someone who's kind of on both sides, I mean, you spend, because you spend, I think, summers in, in New York State or in, in your house that you have there in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Um, do, do you feel like we're moving more to, I mean, I guess the assumption is that America's more puritanical, and do you think that we're moving more towards that, that model? I don't know if that's necessarily right, but do you think that we I are? I don't know. Have you been about town on a Saturday night? Do you really think this place is getting more puritanical? <laughs> Honestly, no. I, I don't see that. I, th- I do find that the British are um, ruthless and often quite brutal toward celebrities. You know, anybody who's in the, or anyone in the public eye, you can be public, uh, uh, politicians as well. Daily Mail. Uh, and, and there's just this feeling of, of it's open season. And there seems to be an ugly pastime here of picking people apart, including about weight, you know. Anybody who's gained a little pounds, you remember that, a few pounds, you remember that whole foo about Diana and her cellulite. I mean, so yes, in that sense, uh, the British can be quite cruel and picky and intolerant. Uh, On the other hand, uh, if we're just going to stay on topic, uh, the... uh, the British relationship to weight has really changed since I first came here. I've been based in the UK the better part of the last 26 years, and when I first arrived here, there were all kinds of jokes about those horrible fat Americans. You know what? You don't make them anymore. (laughs) If anything, much like the Americans, in relationship to fat, you become all too tolerant. So, you know, this, this country 
has got so much fatter since I moved here. It is staggering. I'm so glad the shrimp is becoming a gem. Uh, <laughs> question from the lady there. a very interesting question. You've, made, you've chosen to make this, this character who's, who's very fat male. Do you think that fat's no longer you know, a, a kind of feminist issue in that sense? I, I entirely agree with you. I did make Edison fat not just because of my brother. Uh, in fact, it, w- it might have suited my purposes just because I like to make enough changes that I can separate my life from the book and so that the book has a life of its own for me, not just for you. Um, it would have suited my purposes to change it to a female character just to mix it up and s- separate. But I didn't on purpose, and that is because I'm tired of fat just being a, a female issue. And the more I uh, look around me and pay attention, you know, men are, are getting just as obsessed with their figures as women they sometimes express it more in relationship to muscle than weight, but they're still very obsessed with weight. I think uh, teenage boys are now neurotically hitting the gym, uh, and that's why there's that, you know, that line early in what what I read that says that not only is she not the only person who looks at her photographs mostly to find out whether she's fat, but that this the people the other people who share this problem are not all women. And, I, and mm-hmm. even, even in terms of the statistics, uh, men are gaining as much weight as women. And frankly, most of them feel bad about it. And I think that, that men are increasingly falling prey to what has tortured women now for decades, this mental colonization of, of your head whereby what is really occupying you, a grotesque proportion of the day, is either eating or not eating or something in between, obsessing over, um, you know, I shouldn't have eaten that, so I'm going to skip breakfast tomorrow, or, you know, allowing yourself to be so obsessed with the food issue and whether should should I or shouldn't I eat that biscuit that when you're having a tea having tea with a friend of yours you can't even pay attention to what they're saying. I mean, it's it's actually a mental disorder, and it and it's a mental disorder that afflicts people not just anorexics, not just bulimics. It's ordinary people walking around all the time fucked up about food. And I, I think the whole, our whole relationship to food has corrupted. It is, we have lost our innocence. You know, in the best of all possible worlds, we all eat when we are hungry and we stop when we are full. Do you know anyone like that? <laughs> I don't, except my husband. He's very weird. <laughs> um which is leading me to think about dinner, um, which is, is leading me to say a huge, huge, huge thank you to Lionel Shriver, to Manil Suri, to Rupert Thompson for being here tonight. And thank you all of you for being here for five years. <laughs>